0: Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittum, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better. While balancing running with the rest of their lives in this show, like all of our shows is presented by Prevenex, my favorite supplement and protein powder company. I love these guys so much. I use them every day, multiple times a day because they just help me out. They're a big, they're a big help in my continued growth as a person and as an athlete, and I really enjoy their products and the people I work with over there so much. Their CEO, David Block, is just the best guy. He just really as I talked to him today, in fact, something they're cooking up for later on next week, and uh, just an awesome, awesome person. They give back to so many people in this community and all across the world, frankly, and it's been it's just been an honor to work with them what I like to talk about here on the Rambling Runner podcast are two things. I always talk about Neurofy Plus when it comes to Mastering 40, but today isn't a Mastering 40 episode, so I'm going to talk about Joint Health Plus, which is something that I use every single day to help out my joints, which as runners, we know that that can be a problem issue, especially as we get older. In just 7 to 10 days, you're going to notice a difference in how you feel with Joint Health Plus, Plus. and if you don't believe me, just read the reviews online. The people who have used my code specifically and use Joint Health Plus have really experienced a difference. I know this because David sends me the reviews as soon as they come in, and it's the real deal. So if you haven't given a try yet, go to Prevanex.com and use code RUNNER15 today. That's RUNNER15 to save 15% on your first order. Believe me, you're going to be glad you did. In addition to that... If you're going to save 15%, you might as well stock up. Get the Neurofy Plus, get the multivitamin, and get the Joint Health Plus as well. So, today's episode is with Alexis McCoy. Alexis has become a friend of mine, someone who I often reach out to when I have a potential new idea for the podcast or when I'm thinking about different things in the podcast or just as a sounding board. She's a fantastic person. and I was excited to have her on the show today because we're going to be starting kind of a two-week series here of talking to folks who did a virtual Boston Marathon. And hopefully, we're going to be coming at this from a couple of different angles. The angle today, well, actually, it's not just one angle because Alexis has such a rich history with the Boston Marathon. But she ran exceedingly well this weekend. Basically, the best marathon of her life. She did this weekend at the, at the virtual Boston Marathon. She's run a dozen marathons in her life, and it's uh, quite a thing to you know kind of get that the best marathon she's ever done. Now, we'll talk about what the time meant. Is You know, in terms of, you know, what when do you stop? When do you not stop the time and all that? Either way, this is the best she's ever felt in a marathon. And I was excited to talk to her about that experience. So no matter what the time was, that was really important to me. Also, she has a long history with Boston. She was actually there in 2013. She had just crossed the finish line shortly before uh, the bombs went off. Uh, her uh, and her partner were there. And that obviously was a horrific experience for everyone involved and for Alexis as well. And we talk about the process through which she dealt with that. And it wasn't a short process either. And uh, I really appreciate Alexis going deep on this one and this emotional topic. And I appreciate her um, going into all of it for all of our benefits. And this this episode certainly is more to it than that. We go over an hour because Alexis is phenomenal. And if you don't know her yet, you'll soon see for yourself. So let's get into it with Alexis McCoy. Hello, Alexis, and welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. First things first, congratulations on a wonderful weekend. We have a little series going on here, the Boston Marathon Virtual Race Participants. You're among them. You did you had a wonderful weekend. So first of all, congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It was a really nice day to run it. I originally thought I would run it the last day, Monday, September 14th, but I saw the weather forecast and contacted my coach and said, nope, it's happening on Friday. And we went for it. And I'm really happy I chose that day.
0: Yeah. What's that like trying to trying to I guess kind of working within the flexibility of picking a day did you view that as a positive because it did allow you some choice or are you the kind of type a person where all of a sudden now it's like paralysis by analysis because you can kind of dictate all aspects of it
1: yeah so I'm a little bit of both so I love the flexibility but at the same time I am definitely type a um, so it was interesting because I wanted to control every aspect of it. But then when I started thinking about the perks, I thought, wow, I don't have to travel for this race. I get to sleep in my own bed the night before. I get to choose what time I start. There's no long way at the port a pot. It just all these perks started coming up for me. And it was really nice being able to choose my race day.
0: Yeah, I can I can totally see that. And I can also see people say they're a on the procrastinator side. Yes. Being like, oh, gosh, <laughs> I just I just procrastinated my way into a rainstorm here. <laughs> I should have just she just done this in the beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, and sometimes, you know, it's, it's funny, it's like, especially when it comes to racing, especially for someone like me. I know and we'll get into this. You're someone who loves to race. So maybe you don't feel this. I have this like I'm on the other end of the spectrum. Right, this complete aversion to it—not complete, but you know, I'm, I'm being melodramatic about it. But <laughs> I can see myself being like, "Oh, you know, just any any excuse to push it off or whatever." Um, and then, and then all of a sudden, you know, spiraling down and being like, "Oh gosh, like, what did I just get myself into?" Like almost like the 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 sixth grader who has to you know do their entire science project, you know, in the two <laughs> hours before school.
1: Maybe you just do really well under pressure.
0: Well, you know, if you're a procrastinator who doesn't do well <laughs> under pressure, you are in for some serious trouble.
1: <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting that um the Boston Marathon organizi- organizers, the BAA they opened it up a weekend early. So it was originally supposed to be September 7th through the 14th. And then a couple days beforehand, they sent out an email saying, oh, no, we're going to add on a weekend. You can do this starting September 5th. And it did make me a little antsy because I thought, oh, should I just rip the bandaid off now? Like do it the first day on the 5th, just just then so I could relax. That's the way I was looking at it. Like don't put it off just, it started to make me antsy, but I did, I did stick with the original plan of the second and final weekend, but squeezed it in that Friday before.
0: Now, what would have that done to your taper? Cause you're talking a 10 day difference. And for a lot of people, that's almost <laughs> the difference between the beginning of a taper and the end of a taper.
1: So you've had, Sarah Bishop on this podcast many times. I think she's a
0: co-host at this point. She's been <laughs> on so many times.
1: Um, I wouldn't say it's much of a taper. She would say it's a taper, but I look at it as just a, just a teeny bit of change here and there in mileage. I really didn't go down a lot. Um, and even when I emailed her and said, instead of Monday the 14th, I'm going to do it on Friday, September 11th. She emailed me back and said, you know, you're not going to be fully tapered, but look, we're not going for time. So go for it. And I, I still, I still felt rested. I had done a, a really tough workout on that Sunday leading into that week. And so then I just didn't do a midweek workout. I would have done a Wednesday workout. So I did take what did
0: what did that look like? What did that Sunday workout look like?
1: So that Sunday workout, I want to say it was, gosh, 12, 12 miles. It was like a three mile warm up. And I'm trying to think she oh, it was it was definitely a death. We'd like to call it death by bishop workout. Um, So the first set of three after my warm up was six thirty five, six thirty five pace. So. One times three miles at 635 pace, half mile jog. And then she had me doing another set of three miles at 615 pace, which would have been a 5K PR for me. And then a quick jog and ending with a one mile at 615 and then a cool down after that. And I I didn't, I hit the paces for the first three miles And then that second set of three and that last one mile, I was off probably by like five to 10 seconds on each rep, which was fine. Like a lot of times she'll give me that workout and it really is, you are just supposed to do your best and give it your best effort. And I've learned to stop begging her (laughs) to make the bases slower because now I just strive for those paces. And if I come up short, it's fine. It just means that it gave me something to strive for. So now I just embrace it and go for it. And if I come up short, the effort was there and I'm proud of it no matter what.
0: So what was it like for you getting to the point where you weren't, weren't viewing not hitting the paces as failure and started viewing the paces more as aspirational?
1: Oh, this has been a long process. I have been I have been with Sarah um, since February of 2008. So it's been. Wait,
0: what? You've been with her 12 years?
1: Oh, I'm sorry. 2018. (laughs) Oh, oh my gosh,
0: The longest coaching relationship I've ever seen.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sarah's. Oh, I hope Sarah's having a good laugh when she's listening to this. February 2018. I've been with Sarah since then. So over two years. So it's been a very long process of breaking down how I view myself as a runner and my type A tendencies and my need to hit the paces obsessively. And if I miss them by a few seconds uh, being disappointed with myself afterwards. It's been a long process of her walking me through that and helping build my confidence. And a lot of times it's just a comment here or there on a workout where I give my feedback and I say, Oh gosh, you know, I tried so hard and I'm still five seconds off. And her feedback is that's, great. It doesn't have to be a home run every single workout. It's about being consistent. And she's hammered it home to me. It is about the effort. Even if you're 20 seconds off pace, well, where was your effort? If you gave the best effort you had that day, then it's a success. So it has taken me a long time. It's been an unlearning process. And accepting myself for where I am that day in that moment, that workout, and you finish it, you move on.
0: Right. And yet, as as you said, like, all right, this is is her rationale. This is what she tells you. But you also mentioned it takes a while to get to that point, you know, realistically, also in part because I'm sure there's some workouts that you do complete. So you sit there like, all right, she wrote this workout because she knows I can do it. But I didn't do it. So, am I able to at that point, And I'm by by me. I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm I'm channeling you here <laughs> at this point. I'm you know I've done workouts. I've completed them. On this one, I'm not hitting the paces, and yet I'm just supposed to let it kind of roll off my back. No judgment. Um, is it hard at that point to not judge? on one hand, but then like be positive on the other hand, when you do hit it, like what, what are the hard parts about juggling that, um, give and take with a coach who is really trying to push you to new heights and not kind of giving you easy wins with workouts, like really challenging you and making it so that you're not, that you're being challenged, but also remaining optimistic and positive.
1: Yeah. So what I've learned from her is, say a race goes extremely well, we're happy, we celebrate it. But when a race goes off the rails, and you tend to view it as a failure, we don't dwell on it. And I've started to see things equally treat things equally. If I don't hit the paces in a race or a workout, I'm not going to waste my time getting upset about it, dwelling on it, worrying about it, letting it ruin my day. It used to ruin my day and, and I would be in a bad mood and what a waste of energy. And if you nail the paces or beat the paces or you knock a race out of the park, that is awesome. Be happy and celebrate it. But Don't also dwell in that. You don't want to live in this, like, I'm just going to celebrate, 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 and not think about the future and not think about any other goals. I'm done. I'm done. This is it. So I try to come at both, you know, coming up short or knocking it out of the park. I try to place the same amount of emphasis on both so that it doesn't place me on top of the world or make me feel like I'm a failure on either end. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. And you mentioned it before as an unlearning process. If you could go back in time and try to identify the points where, you know, you have been, you know, hard on yourself for not achieving what either you thought you were capable of or what someone close to you thought you were capable of, what were some of those instances where you you know, can really reflect on now and say, oh, wow, like this, this really mirrors some of the things that I felt early on in my my coach athlete relationship.
1: Yeah, it goes really far back. And I wish so much I could go back and tell myself in high school and college, this is not the end of the world. And it's very hard when you're younger to not take everything so seriously. I started running when I was 10 years old. And I just took it very seriously from the beginning and was very hard on myself and looked at it like life or death. And I placed my own personal value on my performance. I felt like if I had a bad race, I didn't deserve to have fun with friends afterwards. If I had a great race, then I wanted to celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. Um, It was just too much. Of the opposite ends of the spectrum, and there was no in between. And that leaves a lot of room for unhappiness. And because I obsessed about it so much in high school, I went into college and I chose to only run cross country in college instead of doing cross country and track. Because at that point, track had just made me so anxious and stressed me out, I didn't enjoy it. So I dropped down to cross country thinking, well, this will make me happy if I just focus on this. But I found myself getting slower in college and still having that negative self-talk. And I ended up stopping um, cross-country after the end of my sophomore season because I had to find out who I was without running. I could just run for fun, not take it so seriously, And it was a very healthy thing for me to do to walk away from the sport at that time.
0: Now, did you have more of an emphasis on kind of that self-flagellation for when things didn't go poor, when things didn't go well, or more of like, all right, I'm going to, you know, I really want to accentuate the positive when things go well, which was more of a driver for you?
1: (sighs) I felt like. It just depends. I think it depends on the performance. I had, I guess I had both, I had both sides of that. I had days where failure really drove me to work harder and practice the next week, or I would say then I'd have a success that I would use to visualize when I was having a bad workout, I would, you know, put that in my back pocket and bring it up. Okay. This is, I've had success before. I know I can have success again. So it would go back and forth for me.
0: And where did you run in college?
1: So I went to a very small division three school called Bethany college in Bethany, West Virginia.
0: Gosh. Gotcha. All right. So was it was running a drag on you academically?
1: No, I I definitely felt like I had good balance there. And I was surrounded by friends that took um, their academics very seriously, even if they were athletes as well. So it was, it was a nice, it was a nice balance. And for me, I am someone that I do not do well with free time. So the more structured time I had, the less free time I had, the better I did in school.
0: All right, so I talked to your coach, Sarah, uh, via text, you know, a couple of days ago, right after we scheduled this podcast, and she's, you know, ecstatic about how, how well you've how well you've done in the last twelve years. She's coached you, now, <laughs> but um, no, she's She she's so excited, and you know, she thinks you know the world of you and you know, how how well things are going to go, you know, from this point forward. Uh, with that said. You know, you aren't new to running, right? You just mentioned that you ran in college, you ran in high school, and you're a veteran of the Boston Marathon. This was not your first. Um, so when you came back to running after after college, what was that process like for you um, in terms of re- reintegrating yourself, not into the community per se, but having it be part of your life in a positive sense? Yeah.
1: I would say I would describe it as just hot mess express. It was just throwing whatever at the wall, see what sticks. I was just running for fun. I was living in Washington, DC. I was young. I was single. It was just a great time to be in DC. And a coworker of mine begged me, absolutely begged me to enter the Marine Corps lottery. And she said, we could train together. It'd be great. I had no desire to run a marathon. I just thought it was the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard. And we both got in and I just thought, okay, it'll just give me something to do, something to focus on outside of work, bring more balance to my life. And you would think that I would understand to do speed work. I was doing speed work in high school. I was doing speed work in college. You would think that I would put two and two together. No, I just decided I wanted to run around eight minute pace. So I did every single run trying to do it at eight minute pace. I was exhausted all the time. I didn't do any speed work. Instead, I just signed up for a race every single weekend. It it didn't matter if it was a 5k or a 10k or half marathon. It was just whatever this, this, this'll work. This, this'll get me to marathon ready shape. And when it came down to the actual long, long run doing a 20 miler, I signed up for Akron marathon because it was close to where my parents lived in Ohio. And I told my parents, I'm going to run 20 miles and I'm going to drop out right at the 20 mile mark. And you can pick me up. We can go home. And I thought it'll be great. Water stops. And then I'll be good to go for Marine Corps, which was two weeks after Akron Marathon. My parents saw me at mile 20 and I was on pace to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And I just screamed at the top of my lungs. I'm gonna qualify for the F in Boston Marathon, and <laughs> my poor mom is like mortified that I just screamed the F word in public so loudly. And I just charged ahead and ran a 3:38. At, at that point, I the longest run I had done was 17 miles, and I think it was just pure adrenaline excitement. I had no idea I was in the realm of being fast enough to qualify for Boston. And at that time, the qualifying time was 340. It's much different now for 18 to 35-year-olds. So that was it. So I qualified for Boston at Akron. I did try to run Marine Corps two weeks later and dropped out around mile 17 because- Yeah, your friend must have been
0: pissed. You must have been like, what the heck, man?
1: No, here's the best part. My coworker never ended up running Marine Corps.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow! she never
1: followed. She never followed through with training. Never. And so that's the funniest thing. And I I'm still in contact with this with this coworker. The funny thing is, she has still never run a marathon. So she was the catalyst for me becoming a marathoner. And she still has never run one herself. And she's not interested in it. And she's a runner. She just doesn't want to go that far.
0: So, every time, do you run a good race that she just, like, raise a glass to herself? Like, right, that was yeah. me. I'm yeah. the reason.
1: Pats herself on the back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's remarkable. All right. So, you qual- so you basically, like, I, I love, you know, it's so funny, right? Because we all have these huge goals that mean so much to us. And then sometimes we'll get a goal without even, like, planning on it. Like all of a sudden, it's like, hey, like obviously, mid-race, you're feeling very strongly about getting the BQ all of a sudden on a race that you didn't even expect to finish, never mind qualify for something. Um, and then that kind of changes the trajectory of what what lies ahead. As you progressively at that point, and I can't we talk about your own Boston Marathon experiences because that's you know what we're doing here is you know, this whole Boston Marathon recap series. I'm so excited about it. But as you progress more and more into running, Did you find yourself um, falling into the trappings that had grabbed you before? Or were you able to distance yourself a little bit from those experiences?
1: I was able, surprisingly, I was able to distance myself. I found so much freedom and so much joy in the marathon. It is life-changing. I mean, there's something that happens around mile 20, mile 22, where you find the second gear that you did not think existed in your body, in your mind. And it's a metaphor for life. It Everything, all the stress you have, all the doubts you have about yourself, it goes away because you think if I can finish a marathon, I can do anything. So I think that was the biggest thing for me. It stopped being about who got first place, who got a PR and just started being about, isn't this an incredible that my body can do this, that I can put work into something and run 26.2 miles. I really couldn't believe it.
0: Yeah, I hear you. And it's amazing that You know, I've had that experience where I felt that way. But for me, that feeling did not last long. Like it was (laughs) this fleeting feeling. At the moment, I was like, this is a life-changing moment. In retrospect, it really wasn't. (laughs) It was not even close to a (laughs) life-changing moment. Um, What do you think about the merit? What do you think about that experience for you made it um, grab hold and not let go in a way where you've had other, I'm sure – you know, what felt like paradigm shifting moments that maybe didn't end up being so in retrospect.
1: So for me, I think why it lasted that, you know, why that feeling lasted and why it was different this time around is because I had self labeled myself as someone who chokes as someone who is bad under pressure. I had in every single instance in high school or college when it mattered, when we were at a track meet that mattered, when it was a cross-country meet that mattered, where I really needed a place well, or when it was districts going to regionals or regionals going to state, I choked every single time. And I had just had this idea of myself, that's who I am. I'm someone who can't get it done, can't do it whenever the team needs me. And the marathon released me from that. The marathon taught me that I can start over and I can view myself in a new way. I'm not someone who chokes. I'm someone who succeeds. And I'm someone who at mile 24 says, let's get it done. And I can, I can do it. And that was finally me saying, I can look at myself in a new way. I don't choke.
0: All right. So I'm going to push back a little bit here, if you don't mind. Okay. A lot of people, a lot of people, including your host, has choked in a marathon. Okay. Um, So what about the marathon for you, or maybe just not even the distance, maybe it's just the instances that you race on that day, no matter what race you ended up choosing. But what do you think about those days allowed you to transform this inner monologue that had manifested itself and completely flip the script um, on those days. Because again, there's a lot of people who go out marathons and things don't go well at all. And they have these moments where they think back and they dwell on for years. And yet there are other people who've had experiences like yours. So what do you think beyond just the distance and the challenge it represents beyond that, what do you think change within you that allowed you to rise to the occasion instead of, you know, instead of shrinking from it?
1: I think it was finally being able to overcome the inner monologue, the nasty self-talk, the just negative, horrible things that you think to yourself at the start line, at mile 16, when all you can think is, how in the world am I gonna run ten more miles? And I cannot tell you still to this day, in every race that I've ever had a PR, I would say it's, you know, 70% negative self-talk, thirty percent me trying to scream back that at that inner dialogue and just saying, Nope, nope, nope. You have to keep pushing. And I think that inner, you know, the inner voice says you cannot go one more mile. You can't, you're, you're going to slow down. This isn't going to happen. You are going to waste all this training, all this time, just every negative thing you can say to yourself. And it's that 30% where I just refuse to give in. And I keep finding something positive. Okay. Well, I didn't think I'd get through that last mile and I did. And I'm going to focus on the next water stop. And if I feel terrible after that, I'll let myself slow down. Okay, well, I made it to the next water stop. I'm going to focus on the person in front of me. I'm going to put that invisible rope around their waist and I'm going to pull them in. I'm going to pull them in. So it's a constant battle in my brain. And I think that was a big difference for me was winning that inner battle and quieting the negative self talk and teaching myself that I actually, I actually can quiet it.
0: Now, did these negative thoughts really come out in races, or are they are they there for for
1: workouts as well? Um, I would say more so for races. The negative self talk, I think, is there probably before workouts. <laughs> anytime, anytime I open up <laughs> the coaching app and I see the workouts. There's a lot of negative self talk I'm like there's there's no way, there's absolutely no way this is happening, and then it's a relief, thinking to myself, Well, it's not a race, and I could just go out there and give it my best effort, and that's okay. It's more so a lot of negative self talk um on, on race day, the night before races, um, the first mile of every race, it's it's pretty intense. And even though I've been running for so long, it, I don't know if it'll ever be gone.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine. I can't imagine it because, you know, you have that case. I can't, I can't even think about what a race would feel like without the negative self talk. I guess yeah. I would just be like, I must not be pushing hard enough.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right? I want to meet someone without any negative self-talk and say, please write a book. I want to hear all about your secrets.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that person might be insufferable because there'd be no counterbalance. It'd be like, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> can you please filter some of this. <laughs> I guess this, <laughs> this is really, this is really getting to be a lot. Like imagine having a conversation with someone who had no, 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 like no negative self-talk to the point where like, everything they thought about they're like you know what this is a great idea this (laughs) this right here this is a golden nugget idea i'm gonna like i'm gonna let this one fly um you know (laughs) removing removing all filter right i mean even that point like even from a running perspective like you know as hard as the workouts or races that you've done it's like you know you it's not as if you went out there like i'm running the first mile 540 pace because you know what (laughs) I'm, I'm an extremely positive person, you know? (laughs) Why
1: not? (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Um, all right. So you've run a number of Boston marathons at this point. You talked about how you qualified at Akron. What does the Boston marathon mean for you?
1: On a very, on a very surface level, the way I view Boston marathon is it feels like the closest thing. That an amateur runner can get to the Olympics. Um, other than that, it's a life-changing experience. It's it's the best day of your life, even if you have the worst race of your life.
0: And why is that? Because that's a pretty dramatic thing to say.
1: It's the people. It's the city. You cannot. I'm. I'm now a 17-time. Marathoner, and I never hesitate when someone says, Well, what was your favorite? It's, it'll be Boston till the day I die. It's the way that the race is organized, the way that people treat you, it's the way that people greet you in the city, and it's a celebration. And getting to run the course is the cherry on the top, but just getting to the start line is so exciting and the energy that's in the air, nothing can compare to it. And the course, you can't help but smile the entire way because there are people four rows deep. Towards the end of the race, they have to put up barricades from people to stop people from toppling into the street. It's, it's the most insane experience of your life. You cannot You can't hear yourself think when you go through the Wellesley Scream Tunnel. You hear women screaming before you even get there. You're a half a mile away. You just think, what the hell is down the road? And then you see it, and it's something that you'll never forget. And I get it. I never really got the obsession until I ran it, and then I thought, I want to do this every year. And I only ever wanted to run one marathon. Just check it off the list. Be done, and then when I qualified for Boston, I thought, well, of course i'm going to boston like i've I've heard about it,'ve i heard it's great, and then I ran Boston, and I thought that's it I'm in for life now i'm not you're not going back you it's an obsession
0: all right, and part of your Boston experience includes two thousand and thirteen, which for you um i'm not I'm, I'm not going to talk for you, but you were there in two thousand and thirteen. Um, A lot of people who ran, everyone who ran that race has their own story to tell. When you think back to that day, what are some of the things that immediately come to mind?
1: Um, For me, it's a, it's a little tough to talk about without getting emotional. It was, it was a beautiful day and I'm, I'm very fortunate that I got to cross the finish line. I'm very fortunate that uh, my husband stayed safe, um, but if I'm perfectly honest, that that day broke me. It absolutely broke me because when you think about when you think about what is your what is your happy place? I mean, people might think about like a vacation spot or a childhood memory. But for me, my happy place is the finish line of race. And that day, my happy place was forever changed and, and it was taken. And I was very fortunate that I was in a safe place when the bombs went off. We were still in the vicinity. We Spent the moments after the second bomb went off trying to help a woman and her three children find her husband. And I still remember just the look on her face. And we did everything to help her and try to track him. Nothing was working. He clearly had gotten stopped right after the first bomb went off. And Luckily, after what felt like forever, he did arrive at their meeting spot. And I'll never forget that. Just seeing that family reunite after this incredible mom of three children thought she lost her husband. And at that point, we thought we'd try to make it back to our car. Our car was actually in the parking garage at the Prudential Center and clearly they weren't letting people in or out of the garage. And so we became sitting ducks and the roads were barricaded and I'll never forget just the smell that was in the air and the chaos. And we're on the ground and you don't actually know what's happening. People assume that we understood that there was a bombing, but it was so unclear and people screaming. And at the same time, I'm delirious. I've just run a marathon. I haven't eaten. I haven't drank anything. So I tried to sit down on the stoop of someone's townhouse with my husband. And just in those two minutes, I tried so hard to get a hold of my family. Just to tell him I was alive. And I couldn't get through. I couldn't get through to anyone in my family. And just those two minutes that we were sitting there, someone came running by and said, you got to move. You got to move. There are bombs in the trash cans. And so that's how it was for at least another hour just walking in circles, trying to stay away from trash cans, just hearing constant ambulances, being very unsure of what was going on, and obviously we we very fortunately made it home safely. We were eventually allowed to get our car and and leave the area, um. And and I I stopped running. I stopped running after. After that day, I just, I couldn't pick up the pieces. I didn't know how to pick up the pieces. And I, in my mind, finish lines for me had been changed forever. And I didn't know how I was ever going to believe that any finish line would ever be safe again, because the unthinkable had happened and it rearranges everything in your brain. Because an attack like that, you would never, you would never think that would happen at the finish line of a marathon. So you start thinking everything's unsafe.
0: In the aftermath of that and the uncertainty that then rains upon you, what did you do as a person and and your husband as a couple to get past that feeling of constant uncertainty and, um, not feeling safe.
1: It was a long, it was a long process. It was a very long process. Um, I was very naive in my understanding of trauma at that time. I did not know what I was experiencing was PTSD my husband and I, we had a lot of conversations. We luckily had each other through the whole experience. And he, I feel like had a different experience. Um, Just, he was a solid rock in all of it and didn't seem to be like as emotionally as affected as me. He's not a marathoner and I felt like he could kind of detach himself from it a little bit. And that enabled him to offer me just so much support and it was great and he encouraged me to start running again and i felt like i was just kind of taking my time it took years but eventually obviously i'm i'm racing again i'm competitive again but it was it was a very long process and i wish i wish early on i would have understood that it was ptsd
0: did you come to that realization while you were still suffering from it or did you learn after the fact
1: i learned after after the fact so it took um trying to think so i i gave birth to my son in 2016 and had some pretty intense uh postpartum anxiety and it was my son's pediatrician who clearly saw an anxious, stressed out mom sitting before him next to my son. And he asked me, you know, is your anxiety to the point where it is affecting your day to day life? And I said, absolutely. Yes. And he said, if you don't feel personally invested in getting help for yourself, think about it as getting help for your son, on behalf of your son. You help yourself. That means that you get to be a better mother to your son, a less anxious mother towards your son. And that is when I started going to therapy and start peeling back the layers and realizing that the PTSD was a big driver for the postpartum anxiety. And it was a big relief to just put a label on it and learn how to work through it.
0: And I just want to highlight something here because you and your husband, you know, you were in you know very close proximity to each other when the bombs went off. Obviously, you had a different experience in the three and a half hours or so leading up to that, but you were both there for it, and yet you had very different reactions. What is that like kind of in the moment – not in the moment, but, you know, shortly thereafter when you're struggling with it and he's not – and then years removed when you're, you're, you're going through therapy and you're learning from it. And he doesn't have that same experience. What's that like as a couple where you have a shared experience, but you have a vastly different reaction to that experience.
1: It made me question things on an emotional level. It made me question, am I, am I oversensitive? Am I, am I crazy? Am I obsessing over this? And, and he always just Reassured me and was very kind, like, you know, everyone just interprets things differently. And he always reassured me, yes, it was a very traumatic event. You are not blowing this out of proportion. It's just we have different reactions to it. And he was like, I feel sad about it. I feel anxious. I feel worried. It just doesn't, it just didn't affect his everyday life. And You know, I had for years, I had recurring nightmares, you know, he never had nightmares. And so it did make me feel self-conscious at times, but we would talk through it and he would reassure me, you know, if you're feeling this way and I'm not, it doesn't invalidate your feelings.
0: Right. Yes. And I know that for some people, no matter the experience, you know, when you have wildly different responses to that experience, even if they're not by choice, you know, there can be some level of acrimony there because it can be like, hey, like, you must not be sad because you don't feel how I feel or the opposite. Right. I know mm-hmm. that can be can be troublesome for people. So as you know, after your son was born, then you, know, you had a very insightful pediatrician. You started going to therapy, peeling back the onion, as you put it. And as you went through that experience, at what point did introducing running back into the mix become something that you felt um, good about?
1: So I had, I had definitely started running again, like around, I would say 2000, 2014. So it wasn't that like that long after the bombing It's just, it was bits here and there. It was not consistent at all. And I had made a promise to myself that I was only going to do it for fun. There would be no talk. Of qualifying for Boston or getting back there, whatsoever, because in my mind there was no way in hell I could survive that emotionally because I just had too much fear around returning, and I couldn't process it. So it was just let's have fun, let's run a marathon here and there. But if I want to walk in the Mellow Marathon, I'm going to walk. I'm going to have fun. I just I thought it would make me feel better to take the pressure off. And so I did that for a long time from 2014 and 2016. And uh, once I gave birth to my son in May of 2016, I started looking at running differently. I thought, okay, well, I did it competitively. I did it for fun. Now I want to do it for my mental health. It's my alone time. It's my me time. And I Signed up for Marine Corps Marathon again. My return. My return to re- <laughs> Marine Corps Marathon, and I ran Marine Corps Marathon six months six months after my son was born, and it was the first inkling that I wanted to maybe maybe put myself out there again and maybe try and be competitive again, and maybe that inkling that. I want to go back to Boston and it's been long enough and I think I might be able to do it, but I know I need help and I know that I have anxiety and PTSD to work through. And I just thought maybe I can figure this out.
0: All right. Earlier this week, you classified yourself as a serial racer, someone who <laughs> lives to race, wants to race constantly. You described your build up to Akron. Um, I don't even know when you did long runs because you're racing every weekend. But I'm sure you figured it out. <laughs> Maybe you just did really long <laughs> cooldowns. But um, you were at that point. And then obviously there was an extended period of time where you weren't racing. And you weren't even when you maybe stepped to the line or test yourself, it wasn't in that same capacity of like, I'm going to go all out. I'm going to make this happen. You now work with a coach who is of this same ilk. So mm-hmm. talk to me about when that part started to come back and when you feel like there was a, a defining moment when like all of a sudden it went from a curiosity and mental health being the motivation to all of a sudden racing for racing's sake.
1: So this is the craziest part of all of it because I felt like I had started telling myself a story of, okay, I want to start racing. I want to start being competitive again, but I wasn't getting faster. I just was so tired and just exhausted just, you know, being a new mom. It was really hard. And then in November of 2017, I read an article about a mom of four children who won the Marine Corps marathon and she works full time has busy busy life and gets up at 4:30 in the morning to do her workouts and i remember the feeling when i finished that article i thought i have been telling myself a story i've been telling myself a story that i'm a tired mom i'm older now I probably can't get faster. I can try, but I've just been giving myself an out. And then when I read the article, it just lit a fire under me. I thought, I'm going to give it a shot again. I'm going to figure this out. If I don't qualify for Boston on my next marathon, I'm going to hire a coach. So this was end of 2017, and I, I, Right when I read the article, I signed up for Austin Marathon, which is in February of 2018. And I just put my heart into it. I did the best I could. And at Austin Marathon, I ran a 338. And technically, I needed a 335 to qualify. But I I definitely needed to be under a 335. And I knew on the way home from Austin, I thought, this is it. Got to hire a coach. And, um, McCurdy trained announced that they had hired Sarah Bishop and they had mentioned, you know, she's a, she's a mom and she's an Olympic trials qualifier. And I thought, that's what I want. I want a mom. I want someone who's like in it. And she can empathize with me about how hard it is to be a mom and train. And I hired her. And the first week after I hired her, I went out on an easy run, and I was listening to a podcast where she was being interviewed. And halfway through the podcast, I stopped dead in my tracks. And I was like, oh, my God. I I accidentally hired my inspiration. It's, It's Sarah Bishop. Sarah Bishop is the mom of four who won the Marine Corps Marathon. And I somehow did not put two and two together. And I thought, this is going to change my life. This is going to be, this is going to be it.
0: And that was, was that Lindsay's podcast? I'll have another.
1: Yes. Yes, it was.
0: I remember, I know that podcast well, because I was listening to that on a run as well. And now every time I drive through every time it was, it was a run that I usually don't do. So every time I go down that street to drop my son off at soccer or something, I always reflect on that episode, which is funny. So it's like, you know, six to eight times a year, like, you know, for me, it harkens back. Like, it's like, for me, my mind connects places with like the audio that I heard in that place. And whether it's podcast related or music or whatever, right. There's, There's those instances. And I definitely have that, you know, not the same feeling you had, but something similar. Um, that, that is wild. Um, So let's fast forward to this year, because we described you, you're a serial racer. You know, you hired your inspiration. You're progressing. You know, that relationship is going well. 2020 is here. And now there are no more races. So how does someone like you all of a sudden come to handle a situation where all the races that you love doing are now gone, despite the fact that now you're fitter than you've ever been? How did you handle that?
1: In the beginning, I don't feel like I handled it very well. I needed time to to process everything that was happening and I'm very thankful that I I had a coach. I have a coach during this uncertain crazy year. If I did not have a coach, I don't think I'd be running at all this year because I wouldn't have anyone keeping me accountable. And I think the hardest part was I was so focused on twenty twenty. I started referring to twenty twenty as my victory lap because I thought it had taken me seven years, seven years to go from the 2013 Boston bombing to getting an entry into 2020 Boston Marathon. I qualified for twenty nineteen and I missed the cutoff. I didn't get in. And that was really upsetting and so got that real comfy cushion got in it's happening finally in 2020 and then i also had always wanted to be in new york city marathon and i finally got a time qualifier for new york city marathon which is which is insane like it's it's i never thought that was a possibility i ran a 313 at chicago marathon which gave me the time qualifier and I just kept saying, this is it. No matter how I perform at Boston or New York, it's just a big victory lap. And I can be happy about it and just relax. And when Boston got called off, I just thought, I can't believe I have to wait longer. And I felt very deeply sad. At the same time, I felt very very relieved that they called it off because from my perspective, and I don't want, I don't want to mince words here. I did not want to participate in another Boston marathon that ended with the possibility of someone dying. It just, it was horrific to think of what could have happened. If they went forward with the race at that time, yes, I understand we didn't have a lot of knowledge. Everything was new with the virus. It was scary. It was new. But now when you look back on it, I am so relieved that they took the action that they did and made a decision to call it off. But yes, I did take the time to just process it and mourn it. And so I mean, the day they called it off, I, I knew, I knew I said, I just need to take a two week break and give myself some space. And then at the end of those two weeks, I told Sarah, I am going to just do high mileage. I'm going to see if maybe I could do 70, 80 mile weeks just for the hell of it. Let's do it. Let's, let's do this so that I can just rip a fast half marathon in a couple of months if I need to. And she said, okay, so we're going to drop your mileage and we're going to focus on the one mile and you're going to run the (laughs) fastest mile of your life. (laughs) And I, and I, the exact
0: opposite of what you're planning. I love it.
1: I have, I have the email to prove it. I just responded and said, okay, like I I was like I am not even going to disagree with her
0: (laughs) oh my god
1: just the fact that she was able to flip my perspective and flip the training on its head and if you're familiar with McCurdy trained you know that they did the one mile um time trials they did a set of 401 four, mile time trials and it gave athletes the opportunity to completely change their training I felt like the majority of us were hardcore marathon runners that looked like baby deer trying to sprint 200 meter repeats on the road because all the tracks were closed I mean I wish I would have taken a video because it just I was just flailing around not understanding how to I mean some of the workout paces Sarah would describe was four fifty nine pace I'm like what is that <laughs> I what I my body doesn't understand that so Sarah Sarah saved my ass I mean she really did it, because if the mile if she hadn't have told me about the mile trial training or if she hadn't of pushed back on this whole I'm gonna run seventy mile weeks. If she hadn't pushed back, I don't know what would have happened. I honestly probably would have ended up injured. And this mile trial training just gave me a sense of hope and I thought, "What the heck? This sounds fun. It's going to be painful. It's going to be awful, but how great. A mile, no matter what, is over so quickly." And then I found out that a mile feels just as awful as a marathon. <laughs>
0: I love it that, like, the the mile series helps set you up for, like, such an unbelievable race because, you know, looking you know, thinking back, you know, giving up track was one of, like, those major moments for you of, like, this isn't going well. Running isn't going well. I need to give up track. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, so it's, it's so funny how, how things come around like that. So here we are. You just had a wonderful weekend. You just set if you if you you know if you do a stop time marathon. You know, this is like you know what counts in the virtual race series world, right? So elapsed yeah, yeah. laps time you ran around three eighteen and you know in mm-hmm. change of course. Um, stop time because here you are like it's, the race isn't roped off. You know you you have stop lights and whatever and oh my you gosh, know, uh, bathroom breaks whatever. But all of a sudden you you know from a stop time perspective, you know, you set a PR which is like which is insane for no other reason than, you know, part of the reason that you love the marathon is the crowd support that you got and derived from Boston. And that's the first thing that comes to mind. And here you are running fastest as you've ever run in a marathon and uh, doing it virtually, doing it by yourself. And you know, what, what, when you finished that race, not finished, but obviously you, you knew with a mile to go, what, what was happening, but, at the conclusion of that race, what did it feel like for you in terms of what you had accomplished in comparison to other races that you've done well in?
1: So, just to stop you there, so you say with a mile to go, you knew what was happening. So, I did not know what was happening. So oh,
0: shoot. I Thank kept- you for correcting me.
1: I kept my watch so and I do this in all races. I keep my watch on lap pace, because my whole mantra and belief is just focus on the mile that you're in. And I never see the overall time. I don't usually click it over until I'm in like the last 400 meters. I cannot tell you how how many times every PR has been a total surprise until I click I click the watch over. And I had an inkling. I had an inkling that I had looked at Sarah's race plan for me for the virtual Boston. And I I started laughing because I I looked at it and I thought, I think this might be a BR if I follow this race plan. And I went back and looked at my Chicago marathon splits and I was like, yeah, this is very similar to what I ran at Chicago last year and I told myself, well, it's been a year, it's been almost a year since, you know, Chicago last year. And, and I'm in a different place and I feel strong. And I, I just didn't feel like I had the pressure. It felt like this is fun and heck yeah, I'll just follow her plan and see what happens. Why not? And so I never, I never clicked my watch over to see the overall running time. And I especially didn't Because the last three miles, I slowed down. I was running like, towards the end, I was running like 7.10, 7.15. Those last few miles was like 7.25, 7.37. And so I, I wasn't kicking it in. I was thinking, just don't injure yourself. Do not injure yourself. Do not go crazy the last three miles of a virtual marathon, so then when I stopped my watch, I did like wanted to make sure it was 26.23. I didn't want to, you know, make it too short or anything. I I just burst out laughing. I thought, are you kidding me? A 312? Are you kidding me? And that's the first thing that Sarah texted me. She was like, You realize that you just PR'd your marathon. And I I I'm still in a little bit of disbelief and I have a newfound respect for everyone that volunteers to stop traffic during marathons. You know, I always say <laughs> thank you to police officers when I see them in intersections holding back traffic, but wow, that really I I didn't understand how hard that would be to navigate. And also the fact that you have a volunteer that holds water and reaches their arm out to you. So you don't even have to lean. I had set up a water table in my driveway. I cannot even tell you how many cups I knocked over. I almost tripped over my water table because I didn't want to mess up my pace. So I had to like lean forward and keep moving. And wow, that's just a whole new respect. So I'm in shock. I'm in shock that it was 312. At the end of the day, I'm in shock of how hard it is to dodge traffic while you're trying to run 26 miles by yourself. It was, I had a good laugh. Let's just put it that way. I had a good laugh and it gave me a whole new perspective and I need to thank every volunteer at every race, 1000 times more than I do.
0: Wild. So (laughs) this, this is, you know, there's so many people over the last you know, 10 days or so that did virtual marathons. And and many of them did them, you know, with very different goals in mind. Um, you know, whether it was, hey, I'm doing this for fun. I wasn't sure if I was going to do it. Other people, you know, going as hard as they can. Other people having some version of like a, a small get together um, to kind of run with people uh, and, you know, and hopefully in a safe way. And everyone kind of has had a different way that they approached it. You talked about how you went into it knowing full well what the game plan meant for you. Did you, in your preparation leading up to the race, you know, a couple days uh, leading in and also morning of, did you treat this as a race, um, you know, in all the ways that you would have treated, uh, you know, more traditional race?
1: Yes, I definitely treat it as a race. It was the same pre-race rituals, you know, the same race fuel that I was ready to take. Um, I, all the carb loading, the typical pre-race meal I have the night before. The only thing that was that was different that I say was the biggest benefit was I got so much more sleep than I usually get. I'm usually in a hotel by myself and I maybe get 2 hours of sleep because I'm so nervous. And I didn't feel nervous because I got to walk out my front door and run which is just such an incredible blessing. And it really calmed my nerves. And I think that for a lot of people, this virtual race, I think it went well for a lot of people because there wasn't the stress of the travel or being in a new place. And just the fact of sleeping in your own bed, if you have better quality sleep, you're good to go.
0: Well, this has been a really enjoyable conversation, Alexis. Thank you so much for coming on. I had such a great time um, talking with you and, and hearing all of your insights and, uh, you know, and and heart and heartfelt observations. With that said, I just want you to be aware if you aren't already that Sarah texted back to me and was like, "Oh, she's, oh, she's gonna break three someday. Just, just you wait." So, you know, if you're if you thought the hard workouts were over, I think you have uh, you know a whole new world ahead of you.
1: It's the first thing she texted me after Boston <laughs> Virtual. And I, I threw up in my mouth a little bit because I know what's coming, Matt. I know what's coming. I want to break three, but there's a world of pain coming my way. And bring it on, Sarah. I'm here for it.
0: <laughs> Alexis, thank you so much for coming on this episode. This was fantastic. This was really, really good. And I think you can see why, if you didn't already know why I love talking to Alexis, because she's just so insightful. It was funny. After the podcast, we finished up and she's like, I don't know if I was able to communicate my points correctly. I'm like, listen, you are are an excellent communicator. What are you talking about? Like you're a better communicator than me. So if you weren't worried about communicating your points correctly, well then shoot, then I am in some serious trouble. But I think we all know that she did a fantastic job and were better for it because what a uh, impactful episode that was. So what we're going to do again, like I said in the intro next two weeks, we're going to be talking to a variety of people who ran the Boston virtual marathon. And I hope you really enjoy this little mini series. I know that I've enjoyed talking to these people so, so much. So again, thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of rambling runner podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of in post media. Thank you to MetaP for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah enterprising in my surroundings i'm finding the quietest
1: estates states these days disrepresentation of storm brewing I'm amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team i'm trying to show this industry